Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 134, and today's guest is Yannick Malling, co-founder and co-CEO at Public. Public is a new kind of brokerage that makes it possible to buy any public stock with any amount of money commission-free. It is an idea that I wish existed when I was younger, as they are truly democratizing the public markets by allowing people to purchase slices of stock. It is a very different philosophy where you are focused on how much you want to invest or how much you can invest versus the number of shares. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Yannick's background and career, including how he caught the entrepreneurial bug, all the details on public, including how everything works in terms of purchasing slices and the company's business model, how they're building out a social layer to public and how that is a key differentiator, the full background story and how they landed the public.com domain, as well as advice for founders on buying domains, advice on raising venture capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, as this is super exciting, Public is offering our listeners $10 for anyone who is approved and funds a public account through this episode. Go to share.public.com backslash Yannick to get started. That's share.public.com backslash Yannick, J-A-N-N-I-C-K. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Yannick. Yannick, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Public, which is a, you know, it's a great company name for what you're doing. And we're going to talk about that. But, uh, but let's, let's kind of rewind the clock. I'm always fascinated about hearing kind of the background story of people. So uh, what were, like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Because I have a, I, like, I have this hunch that you were probably always the entrepreneurial type. Yeah, uh, I think that that hunch is about right. So I grew up in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, um, on the other side of the pond, obviously. And uh, really, I I guess, kind of tracking any sort of uh, entrepreneurial DNA. So my father um, had his own business, small business, so not not that kind of, um, but small contracting business and really made my first money apart from the paper routes and all that stuff, but the first sort of interesting money is starting to uh, put together PCs, like buying hardware pieces, mm-hmm. putting them together, and then selling them to my dad's friends. Um, that kind of evolved into uh, actually running a small website shop. Uh, and this is like back when Adobe Flash was still like the main thing. I Not, not even like it was up and coming, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Your website was a nightmare then. I know, but um, and and but that's why if you actually could figure out how to do it, you can make a decent amount of money that way. Um, but but actually, uh, what really got me into it was um, I was a, a pretty avid Counter Strike player back in the day. A- again, back when it was just on IRC and like there was no Twitch, like certainly no million dollar prizes or anything like that. Right. Uh, and uh, worked my way up in that scene. Uh, most of the guys I played with went on to do a lot better than I did, uh, went on to become world champions at some point. Um, oh. but, but really, uh, during those days, uh, really started my, my, I think my sort of catching the, the entrepreneurial bug, if you will, uh, started building small websites to allow people to link up and play matches against each other you know for those who don't know counter-strike it's like a 5v5 game and and you know in a digital space it's not like you can't just go down to the basketball court and, and do like a pickup game 
So kind of tried to build that equivalent and, and, you know, that was just a problem that I wanted to solve for myself. And, uh, before I knew it, um, was doing different kind of graphics and building different things and, uh, did it with a, a friend of mine who then sort of ended up doing most of the coding. And I, I was just, uh, way more interested in the design side. So before I knew it, I was spending, uh, you know, seven, eight hours in Photoshop per day instead of spending seven, eight hours playing Counter-Strike. <laughs> and um, so that's really kind of how I started to develop a skill set. And, 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 and then from there, obviously, just uh, continued to kind of try and uh, explore um, any new sort of aspect to, to either tech or, or entrepreneurship. Talk about kind of the foundation of your career, the things that you were doing, and then, um, you know, you were part of a founding team at one point too. Well, actually, so prior to that, after high school, even I, I joined a company called Saxo Bank, which was um, online investment bank, um, kind of like the European E-Trade, if you will. One of the first uh, players to really take trading online back in the day and wrestled my way in through there when I was 17 years old, uh, somehow, uh, mostly, uh, I guess, by showing off some um, sort of, some Photoshop skills, to be honest, uh, but ended up having a, a really, really interesting tenure. I remember General Atlantic, I think, had just invested uh, a huge amount of money and uh, and Saxo Bank was just like in hyper growth. So I think I was like around employee number 300. And I think 12 months later, uh, I think we were like 900 or 1,000 people. So scaled super quickly, uh, opened offices in London, Singapore, and set the first five months of me being there got to work really closely with uh, some of the management team members there, which gave me some really interesting insights. And then, um, and then leading into C of H in, in, in 07, uh, the head of sales and uh, sort of left. Um, and I, I sort of joined him and, and the prior CIO too of, uh, of Saxo. And, uh, and we started building C of H, which, had a lot of different plans that it kind of wanted to do, but like everything else in 07, 08, that kind of very quickly changed uh, when when kind of Lehman went under and so forth. So really, but really on the back of that, uh, CPH managed to build a, a fantastic business. And um, it was funny to be, be sort of part of the whole journey. And it ended up being sort of a, a group structure that had different businesses all within FinTech that serviced sort of the the retail brokerage in, in various ways. So the first one was a um, really like a credit facilitation business, uh, if you will. So um, think back to 07, 08 and how overnight most um, sort of SME financial institutions that were trading with the big banks in London had to put up um, a lot of money all of a sudden or show a bigger balance sheet in order to maintain the credit lines that they'd had in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, going forward, right? Um, all that obviously changed overnight. And so we sort of built a business where uh, it essentially was a marketplace between the bigger banks in London and SMEs in and around initially Europe and then the Middle East and, and ultimately in, in Asia too. And so, uh, so that was a really interesting business, I, I guess, built on the back of the financial crisis, which, which was um, interesting. And I think, I think generally, actually, if you look whenever there is a crisis, whether it's the dot-com bubble or uh, the financial crisis, even I think it's 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 so funny to see how there's like a lacking effect in the next you know five to ten years. You start to hear these businesses that have actually been around for a couple of years, um, kind of hustling their way through those really uncertain kind of territories and 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 shaky waters, but then they make it out on the other side. I mean, 
you know, Google were a little bit similar to like that on the back of the dot-com bubble, right? And so I think, um, and, and many of the, of the bigger fintech unicorns that you've seen kind of now or in the last three years were really also started not too far um, after the, the financial crisis. So yeah. I think it just, I think you look at the majority of the companies going public now, they do have that 10 year history, like, you know, Airbnb announced they're going to go public next year. So they're right around that 2008 timeframe of, of beginning. hundred percent. And I, I think it really just, um, when sort of a, a black swan event like that kind of happens, right? It just forces people to think differently, whether they want it or not. It forces them to do typically more with fewer resources. And so it becomes this kind of um, moment where, you know, you can react to it two ways. You can um, you can see it as an opportunity, frankly, or, or, or you can kind of pack your things and go home. And I, I think... Um, that may sound a little cliche, but I think it's actually very true. And 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 so um, I think that's that's an interesting thing to remember um, every time something happens. Like think back to that kind of moment, and and that kind of puts things in perspective. Yeah, if I could, if if I, if I just had the crystal ball to like sell all my assets in the stock market before that cliff happens. <laughs> now that would be amazing. And then that would, of, be, uh, that would be a very valuable crystal. Yeah, sure. 2008, it was like, Oh my God. <laughs> but it's interesting when you actually do look at then like a graph of the S and P 500, for instance, the people mm-hmm. that bought in immediately after that. Uh, yeah. It's been an amazing ride. Well, right. Like the rally, for the in that sort of uh, ten year period is is really um, the same rally that you've seen I guess over twenty or twenty five years sort of prior. So it's um, yeah it's 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 uh, yeah really I think you can summarize it as you know every every crisis is also an opportunity somehow. So absolutely. Now what about tradable? So that was that part of kind of the, the company you were working for, like a spinoff. I, yeah, Tradable was kind of a, a spin-off and something we sort of incubated, if you will, within the group. So so like I said, CVH Group ended up being kind of a couple of different businesses. There was like the credit facilitation and liquidity business. Um, there was a technology business, which was more like a SaaS type business. And, um, and then Tradable was an API business for third-party developers to then gain access to those, um, to that kind of network of uh, financial institutions. And um, wanting to sort of uh, access those financial institutions, uh, but having a really hard time integrating on a case-by-case basis, having to adhere to regulatory um, sort of um, rules in different places uh, around the world. Um, and so that kind of became a gateway for some of those third-party developers to just access all of those folks through a, a single point of integration. Um, and I think... You know, that's sort of a model that uh, was pretty early at the time, but I think since then has gone on to obviously proven pretty um, efficient in, in, you know, in the payments business with companies like Stripe and Braintree and um, also in, in kind of other businesses, even in the restaurant business. I think there's now like one API to access a bunch of different restaurants, right? And so I think that's um, that was kind of our version of that um, for financial institutions and uh, in Europe and a, a couple of other places around the world. So, what was your role within that company, and, the, and what you know? How, how far did it get in terms of growth and scale? 
so uh, it's tradable. I was sort of the co-founder. I ran it as CEO. It was incubated within the group. So we were all sort of in the same office in, in, in Copenhagen uh, where we were headquartered. Um, and I think we got it to uh, 30, 40 people, something like that. The overall group was still a lot bigger. I think it's a couple hundred people today. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so it was like um, a part of the, a part of the group and there was a lot of overlap. So what we do is when we could essentially go out and, and, um, and pitch a customer, you could sort of have like the infrastructure level of credit facilitation at the core and then kind of working your prey off of like SaaS products and ultimately giving them an API to work with third party developers as well. So it was like sort of a nice uh, synergistic kind of pitch across the different companies. So what do you think, what do you think you learned from that experience being, you know, so this was your first time being CEO, right? Yeah. Um, well, wow. Uh, where to begin? I think, um, obviously the whole concept of like, I, I think there's a lot of different faces to it. So initially you don't really even think of yourself as like CEO because you're like a couple of guys in a room. Right. So it's a little bit like, <laughs> Okay, but, uh, you know, it sounds like a big title, but realistically, you're really just a few guys in a room trying to build something from nothing. And I think that's sort of the first phase. Um, And I think it then grows to be something where you uh, spend, and especially as a a sort of a a designer, you and, and a product person, you know, that's where you're spending the majority of your time. Then you get into like a different phase where you're maybe, spending more of your time um, on actual hiring, um, on things like press and media um, and, and conferences and whatnot. And, and so it really evolves a lot. And I think the number one thing that I kind of learned is it's, it's really important to just stay extremely close to the initial thing that you did, right? So if you're a product person, uh, probably a good idea to stay close to product, right? I think uh, there's a lot of talk about you need to be great at hiring and you do, but at the same time, you can't just like um, that one thing that, you know, you're potentially really good at, you probably want to stay close to that as much as possible. Right. So, so you can hire people that are better than yourself, but I still think that uh, you can have a relatively unique outlook on things as the, as the original sort of inventor and, and, and CEO. And I think that's the same reason why you often see companies doing, uh, like product companies doing worse when the sort of founding CEO, if you will, leaves the company, Apple, Twitter comes to mind, right? And then do relatively well when, when they come back in because um, it's really about sort of having a, a clear product vision and being able to communicate that to your internal team as well as to the rest of the world. And the company was based in Copenhagen, right? Yes. What's the startup scene like over there? So the startups in Copenhagen is um, is really interesting. It's it's grown a lot, definitely over the past couple of years. Like uh, most of the startup scenes have in and around Europe. Um, there's even a bigger fintech scene now, which I think uh, you know after Brexit, I feel like the the fintech scene that London sort of had a really big grab on, partly kind of moved a little bit to Berlin, a little bit to Paris. Um, and, and, and Copenhagen, obviously Stockholm is, is one of the 
bigger. Stockholm is a little bit like the bigger brother of Copenhagen, to be honest, right? Even though it, as a Copenhagen <laughs> native, it kind of hurts me a little bit to say, but 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 the, 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 the cities are very similar. They just have their there are dozen unicorns, if you will, and uh, we maybe have two. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's definitely evolved a lot and it's, it's gotten into a really good place. I think the political climate had always been extremely supportive of entrepreneurship in Denmark. Uh, I think, uh, you know, whenever I would tell people how you actually set up a company in Copenhagen, they don't believe me because it literally just like happens online in 15 minutes, right? And so everything is really, really digital, extremely modern. And, um, and I think that's been a, that's been really great. I think historically the, the challenge really has been, um, it's a small city, right? So I think in greater, greater Copenhagen, you have around a million people. And so at some point, if you want to scale your organization, um, and you're looking for talent specifically in engineering, specifically that has exposure to financial products, let's say that just becomes a small pool of talent. Right. And, and, and so, I think historically that's why uh, certain companies sort of uh, move out when they get a little bit bigger. Uh, but I think it's a it's a really great place to um, to actually run a startup these days. Well, let's let's talk about what you're up to now. So, um, with Public, like, what was the aha moment that led you down the path of starting the company, which um, it was previously known as Matador, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, so um, we sort of had uh, the the first phase of the company built out um, as as Matador, and that was kind of a little bit while we were um, working on public, a little bit behind the scenes, if you will, and 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 sort of um, always kind of knew that that there would be this kind of phase uh, where we would um, sort of democratize it even further. So um, if you kind of take a step back and you look at the stock market. Um, you know, 400 years ago, the East Indian Trading Company went public as the first company ever when they started selling shares to people. And and really today, the way that you partake in the financial system and the stock market specifically is still by buying shares, right? And so that hasn't really fundamentally changed. Um, and the problem is today, you're looking at a stock market where in order to buy into the top 15 companies on the S&P 500, uh, you need five or six thousand dollars, right? Due to the price per share of those companies uh, being higher, and so I think that's more than twice of what the average of, of what the uh, young American on average have in their savings account, right? And so that math for us just didn't really add up, and so we decided to sort of go back to the drawing board and, and see if we could change the variables, if you will, and 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 really, really had this notion of like, okay, if you kind of designed an investing experience purely from the aspect of the investor, would you actually be buying shares or would you just be buying dollar amounts, right? And I think the clear answer to that was that you'd just be buying dollar amounts. The The price per share for a lot of people that are first-time investors especially is a really confusing concept. Uh, you know, it's, it's, relative, it's relatively arbitrary for them what a company is trading at. And some people even jump to the conclusion that there's a direct correlation between the price per share and the overall value of the company, right? And so if that was the case, uh, Chipotle would be one of the most valuable companies in the world, like in the top five or six. That's obviously not the case. And so uh, so it really, it really is a piece of friction that we wanted to find a way to get rid of because we believe that that sort of is the 
um, the next wave in further democratizing access to the stock market, um, especially for sort of the, the next generation of investors. So if, if so, as a consumer, if I'm using public, the um, if I wanted to buy uh, into Alphabet, you know, the parent company of, of Google, uh, which is trading at you know twelve hundred dollars a share or something like that. So, but if I had six hundred dollars, I could buy about half a share. But just I'm buying by that dollar amount versus I'm just going to buy a half a share in the stock market. <laughs> yeah, and 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 on public. You can do it even down to uh, five or ten dollars, right? So, wow. uh, really, this concept of buy any stock with any amount of one, with any amount of money, is something that we wanted to make possible for the stock market. And interestingly, um, while we were sort of um, playing around with this idea, uh, the crypto space was also having its moment, right? And and what we found interesting about the crypto space is that because of the fact that it's sort of born on the internet, there is no concept of having to buy a full coin, right? And so really that limitation exists for historical reasons and, and um, at sort of the stock exchange level, but we thought, okay, if we can build a layer around the stock market where we can let people deal in and out in any amount that they want, you'd be able to just build a, a much more frictionless user experience and, and you'd be able to have a lot more people start to invest er, much earlier than they otherwise would, right? Because they wouldn't have to save up those five, $6,000 in order to buy into their favorite companies. And they'd be able to invest more often too, right? And so I think, um, obviously, um, I think a, a general sentiment around sort of how to invest is um, whether you read the Tony Robbins book or you listen to Warren Buffett, it's always something about start early, do it often, right? But that's really hard to do, right? Because you can't buy Alphabet every month necessarily, right? Because you don't necessarily have those have those twelve hundred dollars set aside every month to just kind of do that, right? And so this whole idea of micro investing into the companies that you that you know and love, um, we became really fascinated with, and 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 we decided to obviously go and and build the technology that allows um, for that to happen. And how did how did you go about building that, like? did you have to build this as far as the you know foundation where almost like a clearinghouse where you're taking a percentage of a share because it is a you know new way of of trading or buying into companies so how how did you build out that foundation to actually make that of what you do a reality yeah that's a really good question so the logistics behind it uh, obviously turned out to be really tough uh, especially because we wanted to to do this in real time there's there's a number of ways that you could do this and it's actually interesting I think if you look at the concept of fractional ownership, it's something that we believe is, like I said, the, we believe there are two waves of democratization. The first was um, investing in various asset classes with no fees. So I think you've seen that in the in the stocks and security space. I think you've seen it um, partially in the real estate space. Uh, but we believe the the next wave is being able to uh, buy into any asset um, in a fractional way, right? And so I think in real estate, you have a couple of things like that. You have it with like art. Um, and the interesting thing with the stock market, though, that makes it a little bit harder than in those other ones is, is for those other models, you sort of buy into a fund that then owns the underlying asset, right? And so it's not a super liquid market. And so everything doesn't have to happen in real time. 
uh, it's more kind of akin to how AngelList works for startups, for instance, right? With the stock market, you kind of need that to happen real time, right? Because if I'm seeing a price and I'm seeing that Amazon is down 2.5% today and I want to buy Amazon, I don't want the price that you can give me tomorrow or next week, right? And so it has to be real time. And, and that was a really hard uh, part about this because then we can't go the route where you like put money into a fund and then buy that and then kind of split it out between everybody. So here you really have direct ownership. So uh, you have a direct fractional ownership um, in a company. And, and so the route that we kind of went with, which inspired us a little bit, is when two public companies merge, you can actually, even on a traditional uh, sort of trading platform, end up with a fraction of a share. Right, because if you own a stock in each share, a share in each company, um, and they merge, depending on um, sort of what the ratio is uh, valuation-wise that they merge at, you can end up with like 1.7 shares of that particular company. Right, and so, uh, so there are already some processes in terms of like reporting for this and taxes and whatnot, and we kind of, but nobody really automated that, nobody really scaled that, right? And so we kind of saw that through a new light and said, okay, maybe that is like how we can actually allow for this to happen, uh, not as an exception, but as the rule, right? As like the way that we ultimately uh, want everyone to invest because we think it's a, it's a better and easier way to actually get started. Now, how does the company work? So if you are doing this without uh, charging any commission, uh, you're, you know, people can earn 2.5% interest on up to $10,000 of uninvested cash which is amazing right now. <laughs> so, so how does a uh, public make money then? So uh, there's a number of ways to make money uh, when you operate um, um, sort of um, as a stock brokerage. Uh, a lot of the bigger companies in the space, kind of if you look for annual reports or not, not they'll call it like treasury or something like that, right? But on things like um, share lending, which is the concept of um, sort of, almost think of it as interest on the underlying kind of shares uh, that is held. Um, and so really what we found is that when you automate a lot of the processes around opening the brokerage account, about the day-to-day -day operations of those accounts, uh, you don't actually need to charge commission, right? And so you can operate a brokerage that's a lot more lean, a lot more automated, um, but has the advantage of actually being um, being zero commission, Um in terms of, um, and, and, and therefore the, the customer not having to uh, pay any fees on trades, right? And so um, that's sort of the model right now. Uh, in the future, we um, we are sort of thinking about um, maybe we should have like a premium subscription offering for a lot of the feature requests that we're getting. And you could say that's a little bit more of how an app, quote unquote, would traditionally kind of monetize, right? And so... Um, we do have a lot of uh, plans for how to monetize kind of further, but um, right now that's what we refer to as sort of our baseline monetization. And one of the, the features that you advocate on uh, on your website and, and the app is the sense of, you know, community and, you know, uh, you know, just like you do on any type of social media platform, you're engaging with other people and sharing what you're doing. So how does that factor into uh, investing? Right. So um, if you think about what even the, the fractional and slices aspect really means and the ability to buy any stock for any amount of money, 
is what that really helps alleviate is the intimidation and sort of scare factor, we call it, that a lot of people have about the stock market, right? Um, a lot of people think that it's a scary place uh, to be. And and even though in the crypto craze, was a lot more people put money into crypto and actually think that's less scary than the stock market, right? Which to us sounds a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, this is prior to the to the bust of Bitcoin in, in, in January, but but... But that sounds a little crazy because you're dealing with an asset class that I think have grown almost 10% year on year over the last 100 years, right? But I think for especially generation growing up with the financial crisis, they didn't quite see it that way. You know, you watch a lot of the movies about it. Unfortunately, they are all really, really good, right? And so it really <laughs> helps fantastic actors and whatnot, right? So it really it, it really means a lot of folks were, were scared about the stock market. Um, from the customer's perspective, that's the number one thing we wanted to solve. And so uh, slices was one part of that, but social was also another part of that. So any investing experience that we've ever seen has been what we call a single player game, right? And single player games tend to be um, a little bit more confusing, a little bit more boring, a little bit more daunting than multiplayer games, right? Multiplayer games are a lot more fun. They're a lot more inspiring. And, and we really wanted to take that approach instead. So the community aspect of public really means that um, anyone can uh, showcase their portfolio. Everybody has a, a profile page, uh, similar to how you have an Instagram, but instead of your pictures, uh, you'll see your positions that you're holding, right? And so if you're an investor in, in Alphabet, like you said, and, and say um, a couple of other companies, then I can see that, right? I can't see the amounts that you've invested, but I can see which companies that you hold in your portfolio. Got it. Okay. That's sort of one aspect. The other aspect is uh, we have sort of a home feed. Um, so kind of like, like a Venmo type of thing, right? As they have for payments. And interestingly, uh, our two investors, uh, two lead investors in the year round, Graycroft and Excel, were actually the, the, the co-leads in, in Venmo Series A back in the day. So that's not entirely uh, coincidental either. And, and and so what happens on public is that every, one, every time you place a trade, you can publish that to your feed and other people can react to it with emojis. They can comment on it. You can put a caption there. But what we find is that um, adding notes for why you're doing stuff is super important, right? Whether you're in a workout session, you know, the sort of the only way to get better something is to document what you're doing and knowing why you made those kinds of decisions. And I've, historically, in the world of investing and trading, that's called a trading journal. Only, and, and, and that's a great tool to have. Problem is, nobody really wants to fill out a trading journal, right? And it's nobody has time to do it today. So uh, with the social layer, uh, you enter a note for why you took the trade. Other people can comment on it. And, and it ultimately becomes a way that people can collaborate and discuss uh, about the the moves they're making in the stock market. Now, public is an amazing name for what you're doing. Uh, and you landed the domain public.com. It wasn't get public, try public, you know, like some, you know, different scenario of using that domain yet not having the .com. So right. how did you go about uh, naming the company? And then of course, landing the, uh, the single word .com. So the naming was really, um, Again, we, we wanted to, we kept looking at this stat that I think around 85% of the stock market is owned by the 10% richest. And um, we kind of kept coming back to the sense of what's commonly referred to, by the way, as the public markets, 
are really the markets for the few, right? And so the irony in that was just overwhelming. And, and um, we, we really wanted a name that um, aligned with that kind of uh, division of, of, of changing that, right? And so we kept coming back to this notion of what if we could open the public markets to the actual public, right? And public obviously means for everyone and for all. And so uh, when we talk about wanting to make everyone an investor, that's sort of where that comes from, right? And uh, and yeah, ultimately the name public was staring us in the face then every day and everything that we wrote and we were like, public, right? That's a good name. And uh, like you said, sort of um, managed to um, get into the the owners of the dot com and 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 managed to uh to get a deal together there uh which is a little bit like buying real estate right like it's uh i think it's actually referred to as the internet real estate business um but um it is a little bit like like buying real estate and uh, and that was an interesting process in and of itself um but the minute we had sort of public dot com it also started to kind of feel right, right? And it was a little bit similar to when you walk into a home and you can see your kids there, right? You start to see the life that you're going to be living there. And so it's very much sort of a gut-driven thing. So, so what advice would you give to founders on buying a domain? Because if you want that premium domain name, like you said, it's like buying a piece of real estate. So did you go through like a broker, like kind of have like someone in between that was working to identify potential suitors? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's there's a number of these that that you can go through. I think even most of the domain registry services have services like that kind of built in. So, I think you can always find and and, and make your way to the owner. Um, I don't think that's the problem. I I, I think uh, the one thing I would say is um, figure out uh, you know how much you really want it and and know kind of what you're willing to pay for it. Again, not unlike buying uh, that apartment or that house, right? Like, I think you got to make up for yourself, like, this is sort of how much uh, this would mean to me or in the case of a dot-com, my business, right? Um, and then, you know, be really self-aware about that. And and then as you walk into uh, the negotiation, I think that holds true for any negotiation, by the way, uh, it just becomes a much more efficient process. Now, how about growing the company, you know, customer acquisition, there's a lot going on in the fintech industry and there's a lot of interesting disruptive models. Um, so, so how do you plan on, you know, actually growing your, your user base and, and customer acquisition in the space that, you know, is, uh, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So, um, so obviously up until this point, um, as a, uh, as sort of an investing app that also doubles as a social app, if you will, um, we sort of have a, a decent amount of people refer their friends into the app, right? So I think um, the interesting thing about this is I think we live at a moment in time where if you had to decide on, say, you want to invest in a um, space company, right? Uh, would you rather ask the stock analyst who's covering 300 different companies of which this is one of them, um, about a particular question, like how they feel about the company, or would you rather ask uh, the person who's been a rocket scientist in the industry what he thinks about the company, right? I think that's sort of the, that's sort of the, and obviously we would all do the uh, the latter, right? And so I think that's really why social is interesting um, in this kind of aspect. And what that really means is when I have friends that are in tech, for instance, and 
I sort of want to know, I just like curious to see what they would actually invest in. And it's, it's something that I would talk to my friends about already. Um, but rather than having that convoluted with iMessage pictures of our kids or WhatsApp group or happy birthdays and this, that, and the other, just having like a dedicated kind of form for it really uh, started to make sense. And that kind of gives you this organic sort of uh, thing that or organic network effect that the network is better the more people that you know in the network right and everybody today by way of their profession or their hobby probably has a decent opinion about something that um, at least you're going to want to pay attention to right there's nobody saying you have to follow anything or anything like that but the more data points you have generally the better it is and the, the better you are at making decisions right and so um so that's sort of been how we've uh, grown up until this point, mostly. Um, I think in going forward from this point onward, um, we have a whole slew of different acquisition tactics that um, I think are going to be quite surprising. Some of them I'm really, really looking forward to unveiling. Can't quite do that yet, unfortunately, but uh, because then the surprise factor is kind of taken out of it. Um, but fundamentally, we, we see a lot of room to innovate both on the concept of product innovation, product development, in the space, but, but also in terms of distribution. I do see that the social piece being a really uh, big piece to, to the strategy. And I, I know, like, I've never seen a financial app that had that component where you felt that this was something that you actually wanted to participate in and you were going to get value out of it. I know there was a, um, there were some startups many years ago now that were trying to um, socialize like your credit card transactions that that yeah. just never felt for me as I'm like, I, I don't really don't want friends to see what I bought, you know, for sneakers right. or something like what's that going to do for me, but to see friends that I, you know, you know, think highly of and what they're purchasing and like, Oh, you know, why did you decide to buy that? Yeah. I think is an interesting and intelligent discussion. I remember something like that actually. Yeah. I, I think there's a, there's a line of um, sort of how personal it gets. Right. And um, I think the difference with investing specifically is that, um, most people today, um, they put money in the companies that they believe in just fundamentally, that's kind of it. Right. And then they have different reasons for believing in them. And so the really interesting thing is be becomes the social graph that, that you can kind of draw. Right. So, um, you know, Facebook may tell you something about who's hanging out with each other. Um, Instagram kind of to the same, right. Venmo may tell you who's having lunch with each other, right. Or who's, uh, playing fantasy football together because you always see these little like payments going through back and forth. Um, and we think public may tell you something about what a person fundamentally believes in. Right. So we have these different sort of themes on the app, uh, which we've done our own. So we looked at the traditional sectors in the stock trading space and, and realized those are not all relevant, but they're a little bit outdated. And, and, and so what you really want to see is not going into automotive, seeing 300 different car companies. You really want to see, who's investing in self-driving cars, right? Who believes that's going to be the future and who's investing in, uh, in whether it's cannabis or esports, even, right? So, so we, we, we have kind of a different uh, view on how to like uh, thematically divide up the markets. Um, and that just ends up presenting a very interesting social graph because you can click on somebody's profile. You can see which themes they're invested into, which companies sort of that they're invested into. Um, and that really says something about who they are as a person, right? It's almost like put your money where your heart is, uh, not your mouth, but your heart. And uh, and, and that kind of uh, ends up drawing an interesting social picture of it. 
Now, how was the experience raising capital? You raised capital from two blue chip VC firms that you mentioned, Excel and Graycroft. Um, What was that experience like? I mean, you know, know, they invested in Venmo. So it seemed like a very logical, you know, two firms to hopefully, you know, win their, uh, you know, the the opportunity for them to invest in your company. But uh, what was that process like? And what would you give other uh, founders, you know, advice on raising capital and trying to to get the right investors? Right. So... So one of the firms, Greg, we we actually had worked with uh, before um, on a on a previous really really early round of funding, right? So they had kind of followed the journey along um, Excel and actually Advanced Capital came into that round too, um, and um, that at at that point in time we we hadn't actually launched Slices yet, right? So um, it was um, it was very much sort of um, getting an understanding of like how they saw not just the fintech space, but like the mobile finance space for consumers specifically, like you said, in the case and, and, and everybody kind of took a different kind of uh, a different page out of it, which was interesting. So obviously um, in the case of uh, Excel and Graycroft, like I mentioned, they sort of led the round in Venmo. And so they actually are the, some of the few busy companies that had exposure to a financial service that was inherently social and they had never really seen that kind of thesis um, sort of at any point in time after that. And so that really meant that they were um, just, I think, naturally interested in the model. Um, and I think in the case of Ad- Advanced Capital, um, they are historically, I think, uh, sort of a, a media, um, invest in media startups and, and both in the social space and and other spaces, and I don't actually think they had done any fintech investments. And and so what was interesting is that they really saw this as like finance slash lifestyle, right? Like we're really going back to this concept of like the companies that you want to buy into, right? You want to be an owner of, you really should wear those companies proudly. They should be publicly, transparently showcased to everyone else, right? There's no reason, we see no reason to to hide that. Um, from the rest of the world. And so with the whole social graph, that kind of became a, uh, they, they really took more of a, of a media kind of uh, glance at it. And, 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 you know, through a lot of conversations with them, we could also talk that they um, completely understood the vision and, and kind of where we were going. And I think if there's one thing you want to cook it down to, that's really right. Like, do they have conviction in, in, in the vision that you have and, and do they share the same worldview? And if that's the case, then I think you, you have a pretty good shot of achieving some sort of deal. What's the, uh, the size of the team now and, and what, what are your plans as far as hiring moving forward? Um, I think we're about 15 people now, um, mainly New York city, obviously um, a couple of folks uh, in, in other places too, um, and are looking to expand the team. So um yeah, you can go onto our website, public.com, which we've mentioned a, a bunch of times, um, and look at the career section. Um, but but um, looking at hiring across engineering, marketing, et cetera, um, obviously, as we now sort of kind of finally came out of stealth, as you will, and, and are just now looking to, to kind of grow the company and make everyone an investor. You're busy building a company, but uh, outside of uh, of building public.com, what uh, what do you like to do for for fun outside of work? Oh man, well, uh, I, first of all, I I had a kid a year ago, my oh, first awesome. son. So uh, that 
means that the, the the time that I have outside of building a company is now <laughs> significantly limited, uh, as anyone who is a father or mother will will surely understand. Um, but that's been a blessing, and honestly, you know, that's where uh, most, if not all, of my energy has gone towards when it's not uh, sort of um, building a company in the office or whatever. But um, but historically, uh, big MBA fan, um, kind of tried to follow the esports sector. So uh, I still have a lot of friends in, in that industry. Um, Sam Matthews, the CEO of Fanatic, is a, is a good friend of mine back from London. And, and I think um, it's been really interesting to see that kind of industry evolve, right? And, and you know, I was sort of part of uh, the early scene there. And then it's just exploded into this much bigger thing. And so... Um, always like to kind of follow those kind of journeys and try to stay close to that as, as much as I can. Great. Well, congratulations on the launch of public. Cause I know it was recently uh, announced to the world here with the, the app being live. It's an amazing product that's democratizing the whole opportunity for lots of people to invest that were probably intimidated. And then the savvy investors too. It's uh, it's, you know, just a great opportunity and a different model. But well, Janik, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your background, all the great things you've done. And of course, what you guys are building at public. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.